and it will be Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, have a, you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we think of the passage where Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall all be made alive. And so we cry out to you this morning, would you speak words of life to us? And would our hearts truly not just listen, but hear and believe, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. It's a silly ad, isn't it? And yet, as far as I can tell from when I was a little tiny kid, they're still using the same ad. It rhymes, it's a jingle, it sticks with you, and it asks the question, what is worth getting up for? And the reason the ad tells you that you need to get up is it's worth getting up for the warm cup of coffee that's waiting for you. In other words, against all the reasons to stay in bed, and there are many, the reasons for getting out of bed are greater. There's something worth waking up for. And spiritually speaking, Jesus too calls to us to wake up. Not just get out of bed in the morning, but to spiritually, he's calling to you this morning to wake up. And I think through this letter to the church in Sardis, what we will struggle with is to hear the alarm going off, to hear Jesus' words, and to avoid hitting the snooze button. For if you hit the snooze button, you may never get out of bed at all. Jesus' words here to us this morning, the best part of waking up is not a crummy cup of coffee. There's so much more to carry us through this letter to the church of Sardis. We're going to hear the alarm that is a call to awaken. That's verses one to two, a call to awaken. And then we'll see how to wake up, verse three. And then we'll conclude by looking at why it's worth waking up in verses four through six. So first, a call to awaken, verses one and two. Now, as the other churches, they had received these letters, remember, This was a letter that was on a mailing route. They'd all gotten each other's mail. They all were reading it. And as they had come upon this one here to Sardis in chapter 3, Jesus references the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now, if you were with us back in chapter 1, 
And you had just read through this, you would have been recalling to mind an aspect that Jesus was hitting on there because he gives us the interpretation there of the seven uh, stars and the seven lamps and the seven spirits. Uh, Recall that we've said the seven stars were representative of the angels over the seven churches. Uh, So that each church seems to have an angel over it. Now, being that this is apocalyptic, um, it's worth considering there might be more going on here than just a literal angel over the church. After all, the word angelos means messenger. So um, it could be in reference to something beyond a particular angel over the church. It could be in reference to the messengers, maybe the pastors, or maybe whoever was bringing this mail to the particular church. And then we find also... Brought to mind not just the seven stars, but the seven spirits. Recall that we've said again, and it's worth repeating again, that the seven is the the completeness. The completeness of the Holy Spirit. This is the fullness of God's spirit. And and so if you put these things together, um, what you have is, in one hand, Jesus has... The, the, the messengers to these churches, the, the angels, and in connection with the church itself. On the other hand, the fullness of his Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the one who's got his hand in the fullness of himself and the fullness of the church, in the communication to the church, and he's the one who's bringing these two things together. There's enough of God to go around for these seven churches, we might say. Did you see the startling words then from Jesus? Wake up. Wake up. You look alive, but are dead. Now, again, in apocalyptic language, the way that this sort of paradoxical language works is you're supposed to scratch your head and say, now, wait a sec here. You're dead, but wake up. Dead people don't wake up. And you're, you're supposed to, to wrestle with this. And, and, and the point of the paradox stands. Zero in, though, on this reputation Of being alive but are dead. Now, historically, there's a piece of information that may help us understand how we arrive at this point. You see, this reputation of Sardis, not just the church, but the city superseded itself, that Sardis had stumbled into great wealth. This church was very well to do. The church, uh, the city itself, had discovered the art of wool dyeing, and they were very successful with it. Archaeological digs show us that when they have unearthed some of the tombs, the people in Sardis had jewelry like none other. It is said, and to my understanding as I tried to suss this out, is that Sardis was probably, if not the first place, where gold and silver coins were minted. Um, They had actually struck gold literally there in the town, and so they had such a surplus of this. They were very, very wealthy. This was a city of wealth. This was a city of fame. And appearances can be one thing, but the reality is another. So that from all of the other churches, they probably would have read this and wondered, now wait a sec here. Did Christ get this wrong? Did Christ mix this church up with another? Did John accidentally write down the wrong church here? Why? Because they had a reputation. People would have Read about Sardis here, they would have said, wait a sec here. Sardis, we know Sardis. They're successful. Sardis is where God is alive. 
Sardis is where we always hear the good reports. We hear reports such as new buildings, a growing congregation. Every night of the week, they have things going on in this church. You have events, you have conferences, you have Christian concerts. And further, every affinity group in this church was able to find its place and home. Well, you like racquetball and Diet Coke and classical music. There's a group that meets on Thursday nights for you. Oh, you like Pepsi and you like basketball and you like 17th century poetry? Well, there's on Friday mornings, you can meet with that group. And so everybody there, you could see, has their place. It's bustling life. Sardis, they're successful. Really. Now, if this was Pergamum, if it was Pergamum, we would say, yes, they need to repent all right. But Sardis, really? And thus, friends, the point is made. From an outside look, Sardis has a reputation, but with God, who sees to the spiritual core of you, well, he says it's all fluff. You have a great name, but works are dead. This letter, I think, brings great concern to Church on the Mountain and our other sister churches. Why is that a concern for us? Because we could quickly read this and just let this go right over our heads. We could say, this doesn't really apply to us. Maybe the big church down the road, but we're smaller. We don't keep a very busy schedule. We keep a rather mild schedule. And honestly, to be frank, we don't really have some sort of great reputation at all. We must avoid thinking then that this letter doesn't matter to us. Sometimes to really understand the situation, you don't just look at what is there, but would you notice what's not there? The other churches receive a commendation that is in reference to the battle that they're under. So that Jesus with the other churches, he says, now look, you got some messed up things, but you got some good stuff going. You're standing firm amidst the persecution. You're, you're putting up and patiently enduring. You, you have your ser- my servant, Antipas, who was martyred. You remained in faith and stood firm and you pushed back on the culture with the gospel. But here, Sardis seems to have no persecution at all. Therefore, they've been called a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. And I would suppose with you that Sardis had a witnessing problem. I think the wealth that they may have experienced in the vibrant, bustling economy had created a culture in which the church and the general city were at such peace with each other, there never was a moment of friction. I think, friends, in many ways, this has been Western evangelicalism. In some sense, this is us. By and large, for many decades now, we have enjoyed such wonderful freedoms as Christians, and we've been mutually benefited that the church and the culture at times have been indistinguishable. So that affluent churches can build massive buildings and massive programs, and there's nothing immediately wrong with this. But what is alarming is the issue of having a reputation of being alive, and yet in the reality... No spiritual, genuine fruit. You look one way, but are not. So question, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? You have to wake up. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So we found ourselves sleeping, and we ask, okay, what are we going to do about this? 
Here's what Church on the Mountain will do. We will follow Christ's directive here to remember, to keep, and to repent. First, remember. Remember what? I forgot. Remember what you received. We read about this in 1 Corinthians. Now, it's interesting. John wrote the book of Revelation. Paul writes 1 Corinthians. And yet, yet they use some, they use some overlapping, striking language here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, now I would, listen to the key words, I would remind you, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you, here's the other key word, received, in which you stand. In other words, where's the very foundation of this church? Where is it that we're going to stand or fall? It will be on the gospel. And if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, he says there also, it is by which you are being saved, this gospel, this good news. For I delivered to you that of first importance, what I also, here again, received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Later in the same chapter, in verse 34 of chapter 15, he says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. So the type of awakening that Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians that I think has its correlation here in Revelation is awaking up to your sin, seeing that everything you do, think, and feel without faith is sin. And this type of awakening is to an awaken up to what we first received. What did you first get? The good news. The gospel. To remember what Christ has done by awakening us up. This is pictured as we sung about earlier this morning and as we see in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, where Ezekiel's called to go out and he sees these bones, this pile of dry, dead bones, and everything's separated from each other. Uh, it's not that you have an entire skeletal, you know, man or woman in one, in one part. There's a head that's separated and a foot over here and a hand over here. And they're dry. They are dead. And it's the very speaking of the word of God that brings to life these bones. And this is what brings people to life. It's the word of God being spoken. It's the very thing that we see in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, where we read, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And when we wake up and the church lives in light of this good news, and in light of the great commission that it was given from Jesus, we will see two things. I think we'll see two things. First, we're going to see people, few in number, coming to faith with changed lives, given true hope. But we're also going to see If we're sticking with what we received, ridicule, persecution, pushback. Why? Because our message really is offensive, isn't it? Have you considered this? Think through for just a minute with me what we're supposed to be doing. Get this. We tell people whose lives from the outward perspective are perfectly put together. We we tell them that they're enemies of God. People say, well, wait a sec. I have a wife and two kids, a white picket fence and a dog. I have a good paying job. I I pay my taxes. I don't steal from my work. What do you mean I'm an enemy of God? And we say, yes, yes, you are. Because you've made your perfect life your God. 
rather than the God who created you. So that you worship the things that were created rather than your creator. And Jesus, what we also have to say is this, and Jesus knew you would do this and he's provided for you a way to turn from being an enemy into a friend. That he said, rather than you coming to face the final judgment for your rebellion, for your spurning him, for you making your life your God, for you making your family your God, your job your God, he says, I'm going to face the judgment that I'm going to stand condemned a sinner to die in your place. And now you can have purchased for you the only truly perfect life that will last forever that you were meant to have. And when you say that message that I just said, it will create tension. It will create pushback. And by God's grace, you may see a few who have the blindfold begin to fall off of their eyes. Now, I just said that in probably less than one minute. Friends, church members, take a week, take a, take a month, take a year, take two or three years to continuously come at that message with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. They're calling out for you to tell them that message. Oh, they won't say it. Oh, they might put off opposition, but they desperately need you to share it with them. And so, friends, we're told to not just remember, but to keep. The tendency for the church to drift away from the gospel is always at play. The reason we want to continuously keep the gospel central is because the default, default mode of the human heart is to drift away. This is why so many churches, so many churches will start in the gospel. They will begin in the gospel. And yet, over the course of years or decades, they will slowly drift away to not just keeping it central and keeping it being the very heart of their ministry, but it becomes assumed. And once it's assumed, you, you go two directions. You will go towards licentiousness and saying, and eh, none of this really matters. Or you will go towards legalism where how you know that you are saved is by your good works and not by Christ alone. And so, church, you see the the need for us to keep the gospel central, to keep coming again and again and say, will my heart rejoice this day? Will my heart rejoice again this week in what Christ has done for me? To leave the gospel, to quit living in light of the gospel and sharing the good news of it is sin. It's sin. It's wrong to do that. It's an offense to God. And so we are called to keep it, to remember it, and to repent. And to repent in this context, I think at least has to, calls us to do the first two, to remember and to keep. But I'm sure here that the works being incomplete in Sardis means they surely must also repent by confronting those in the city of Sardis in such a way that it does create a response to confess Christ. Um, one of the main works we have been given as a church and we're trying to emphasize this year, is discipleship. Discipleship means we're taking people who are unsure of what it looks like to love and follow Jesus, and we're trying to help them do that. Now, the problem is, if you don't have anybody to make a disciple of, it's because we're not bringing people to the point where they are enemies of God, to a friend of God, to then help them follow Jesus. And so, I think at least part of waking up here is to see that we are called to proclaim the gospel so that unbelievers will become believers, so that Christians then who struggle to understand how to follow Jesus will be helped along that path. Friends, the best part of, of waking up here 
is to live. There's something worth getting out of bed. And I would argue that it is for us to make disciples, to confess, to be witnesses to what God has done. You, you see also how Christ closes the letter? This is why I think that this is an issue of evan, evan, evangelism, really. It's because at the very end of this letter, he says here, I will confess. I will be the witness. He says, I will confess your name before my father. And I think the reason is, is because there's a connection here. That it was a speaking and a confessing issue that Sardis had. And in an obtuse way, I think Jesus is saying, look, you, you confess my name. I'll confess your name before my father. If Jesus is on your lips, then your name will be on Jesus's lips to the father. Jesus says, if you tell others, Jesus died my soul to save, I'll tell the father. Indeed, I did die to save David. I did die to save Susan, to save James, to save Linda and many others here. One study conducted by LifeWay Research found that 80% of those who attend church one or more times a month believe that we have a responsibility to share our faith. And yet, despite this conviction, only 61% or 61% have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. And so what that reveals to me and shows us is that we're convicted on this, and yet our conviction must spring out of a heart that says, this is an adventure to do this. This is wild. God has called us to do something that's incredible and it's worth doing this. And here the warning is if we fail to wake up, then Christ promises to come against him like a thief in the night. Now this would have raised an eyebrow. I think as other churches and even Sardis was reading this, they would have said, you, you know, the history of Sardis, they, they were a city that was up on an Acropolis. They were up high. Uh, on three sides of this Acropolis, there are these steep cliffs. I mean, you talk about the, the cliffs of insanity. Uh, th- these were, it, it would have been inconceivable to go up them. And, and so there was only one path that was actually on the backside. And if you knew Sardis's history, you would know, well, what happened twice was the guards who were watching the way up to the city fell asleep at night. So that in 549 BC, again in 216 BC, the city was ransacked because they fell asleep and they didn't stay awake to do the mission that they were called to do. And I think it would have raised an eyebrow. So too, Jesus will come like a thief. We will need to remember here that this coming like a thief is is interesting. It's not Jesus coming in with loud, noisy gongs and declaring, I'm here. Um, this is not his coming, um, you know, at the end of the time. This is not his second coming. I think that's in, in, at play here, what we'd say the day of the Lord. Here, his coming like a thief highlights two pieces. One, uh, that it will be quiet, that it will be unknown that he is coming. But two, it will be in reference to the fact that it is a judgment upon this local church. Uh, So that this is not Jesus coming at the very end, but just coming to, I would say, not just to the church of Sardis, by implication, any church that fails to continue in the very things that we've received, the good news, the proclamation of the good news. So here is how to ensure that we don't have the reputation, but the reality. You not only hear the alarm going off, the call to get up, to wake up, but you put your feet on the floor 
as to wake up by remembering, by keeping, by repenting. And it still leaves us with the question, why exactly is it that it's worth getting up? Well, look at verses four through six with me. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess my name before his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Church, the reason you want to wake up, the reason you want to wake up is so that you can live. The best part of waking up is life. That is what is promised here. God has not promised that a life will be filled with wealth and with comfort, but a life that's worth living here and now, as well as then and there. I'd say the best part of waking up is this, the adventure of living with Jesus with the reality of a life worth living now and the life into the eternal. The life I'm speaking about here is your name in his book, your name on his lips and his clothes on your back. You see that here? The repeated refrain that we've seen so far again and again to each of these letters is that the address is to the church, but then at the end it's to the one. So that even if all others run aside, but you complete your works, then there is good news for you. I want to first consider the more difficult phrase, the blotting out of your name, where he says here that I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, admittedly, from a very quick first pass through this, you might read this and go, oh, I didn't know this is how it works, that God is putting everybody's name in a book of life and then he just slowly but surely kind of goes through in the racer. Nope, not this guy. <laughs> nope, not this girl anymore. And then, whoa, I see they're coming back. I'm going to rewrite it in and then maybe erase it again. I don't know that that's the point here. The reason is, I think a slower consideration stated in a positive way might help us to see how this works. All those who continue conquering with Jesus, their names are solid in the book of life. You know, I read... This section here, and I see the emphasis is no, not so much on warning. I think the earlier section is on warning for those who don't continue with Jesus. But here, for those who do, the encouragement, the joy is you're there. Your name's there. It's not going anywhere. Because to become a Christian in Sardis and to truly do the work of pro- proclaiming would mean your name could be erased from a couple places. If you were part of Judaism in the local synagogue and you converted and became a follower of Christ, well, it means that your name would have been erased out of the synagogue record. They say, you're no longer part of us, which is all as well. But further, if you remained with Jesus in many of the cities in the Roman empire, it would mean that your name is not just blotted out of the synagogue. It's blotted out of the citizenship. You could lose your citizenship for not declaring that Caesar is Lord, but Christ is Lord. And therefore, your name would be blotted out as a citizen. You're not a citizen. You don't belong to the synagogue. And Jesus looks at these Christians in the eyes and says, for you who remain faithful, your name's not going anywhere. Your name is in the only place that it really matters in the book of life. Those who continue to profess and claim Christ as their God will have him confessing our names to the Father before the angels. So, friends, we don't want the reputation of being alive. We want the reality of it. 
And those who have the reality are also promised new clothes. And so we look then at the, the white garments. Now, I'm a particularly a little bit like Johnny Cash, you know, his uh, song where he says, uh, you know, I'm the man in black, where he's like, I, you'll never find bright clothes on my back uh, because I'm the man in black. Now, mainly, if I wear white, here's what's going to happen. You give me five minutes and I will stain that white shirt. <laughs> I mean, if I have one nice white shirt and when I wear it, I drink my coffee like this because guaranteed it's going to get it on there. What if I could give you a shirt that was bright white and made you look your best and was never going to be stained? You know the feeling of putting on new clothes when it feels like it makes you look your best? Well, friends, it only takes us a few chapters later to read how we get these new clothes of white. We'll see later here that these robes, they're, they're not clean because of us. The reason these robes and these clothes are white, it's because of the red blood of Jesus. Flip over to Revelation chapter 7, just a page or so over, and pick up at verse 9 with me. Now, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and language. Some people from Welches, you see that? Standing there before the throne and the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, I love this, sir, you know, (laughs) you know. And he said to me, yeah. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You see that? How do our clothes and robes become white? By the red. Again, here in the middle of this intense book, a reminder that we are in the middle of a God revealing to us to us a person of Jesus and he's surrounded not by those who got the religion right. No, he's surrounded by those who knew they needed the lamb and his blood to cover their sins so that they would be worthy in his sight. They are those who live in light of this good news and catch why it's worth it for these folks here who are wearing these white robes to wake up. Look at how this concludes, verse 14, or sorry, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. The the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them into springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Is it all becoming clear now? Why is it worth waking up? You have to keep reading, friends, to see. We'll have to see that Christ is the one who woke us up from the dead by becoming dead for us. Why would you even bother getting out of bed? 
Well, because something good has truly come. The letter to Sardis is a a wake-up call. Uh, It calls us to see who is the fullness of his spirit in one hand and has the fullness of the church in the other. And that he's not fooled because reputations are one thing, but the reality is another. And for us, just as with Sardis, we must return to what we've received. Christ must be on our lips. Or in Christ, judgment will come against us. So the call to wake up, to look forward to the new clothes in Christ, this eternal security to come. For friends, if you hit the snooze button, you may never wake up at all. Jesus' words to us this morning are the best part of waking up. It's not a crummy cup of coffee, but it's a life worth living now that's anchored in the life to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask that you would awaken our souls. Would you quicken us from the dead? Far too often, we yawn. We say, oh, that's interesting. And yet we don't really care. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would sweep through this church and bring revival. Lord, would we get into trouble at work because we talked about Jesus Would we see people in our community here on the mountain coming to the gospel for the first time because Jesus is on our lips and we need your spirit to guide us and lead us so this will happen or it will be of no use at all. So we cry out to you and ask for help in Jesus name. Amen.